0: Dave is going to come and preach this morning, um, and I just have to mention something to you that you may not know this. Um, Dave was working in a Christian school, and, um, and he was working with uh, teenagers. And, uh, and then he decided not to go back and work in the Christian school, and that's when we asked him to come work at Calvary. Uh, and at that particular point, I, I remember asking him, Dave, you think that you ever would ever would want to go in the ministry and be in the, in the pastoral ministry someday? And he says, well, I'm not sure about that. But I know one thing I don't want to do. I don't want to teach in high school. And I said to him, it is good to know what you don't want to do. And um, and so he began to enjoy doing ministry. And, uh, and of course, you who've been in our church and, and Sunday school, you know that God's given him gifts of teaching. And uh, even though he doesn't like administrating things, he does good at that too. And uh, But so we, we're, he's going to be sent off, him and Emma, to go to California. And and the first thought I have is, boy, can I go with you? Uh, I mean, it's very, I don't know if you've ever been to Southern California. It is beautiful there. It's, it's nice 98% of the time. I remember when I was there at seminary, and it was fall. And I, I, I went to the curb, and there was two leaves. And I said to the guy who lives there, this is fall? This is not fall. You know, and uh, so it's very pleasant, very pleasant uh, weather there. And, uh, and he's going to be challenged in ways he wouldn't dream possible in seminary. It's very difficult. But Dave, uh, well, he'll do fine there. And uh, so uh, he's going to come. I asked him to preach today, last time, until, and then they're going to be leaving next Sunday night, right? Oh, two Sundays. Okay. So you will be around? Okay. So he'll be here next week, though. And so, uh, again, if you just uh, came in, we have a luncheon after for Dave and Emma, so you can, you're welcome to come back and, uh, and stay and, and have some lunch. And we want you to, all right? So, Dave, why don't you come? I, he doesn't really need an introduction. Everybody knows him. Why don't you come preach the word to us this morning?
1: Thank you, Pastor. It's been a joy to be serving at Calvary, and I look forward to continuing to serve, even though I'll be physically removed, but of course my heart will still be here. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we hear from his word. Our great God, what beautiful music we've heard and sung regarding you and regarding your sons coming to the earth. Wow, what wonderful, what a wonderful truth that he came and became humbly and he came bringing peace and yet, what glory, God. The, your son is, the, is the, um, the inheritor of the universe. He deserves all glory and will receive all glory. Everything will be subjected to him, O oh Lord. Cause us now to understand this glorious tru- truth from the psalm, from Psalm 2. Just how great your Messiah, your son is. Give me the ability to explain it. Holy Spirit, please work in the congregation and those who hear, Lord, that they might be impacted. And that they would bow and submit and rejoice in your great Son. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Well, it's almost Christmas. But really, Christmas is a surprisingly popular holiday. No holiday in America is more widely or extravagantly celebrated. In some ways, this is not surprising. Most Americans still identify themselves as Christians of one sect or another. Our culture features a large and ancient set of nostalgic Christ- Christmas traditions and songs. And if you're a business owner, Christmas is great for making money. But in a more fundamental way, Christmas popularity is very surprising. Christmas is the celebration of the birth of Jesus. Considering who Jesus Claimed and demonstrated himself to be, what Jesus taught concerning sin and salvation, and what the Bible teaches regarding Jesus' return to the earth. If they knew, most in America and the world would not like Jesus at all, and they would not want to celebrate his birth. To many, the full truth regarding Jesus is passed over on Christmas for the image of the baby in the manger. On Christmas, Jesus is just a well-behaved baby boy born on a sleepy and peaceful night in Bethlehem. Jesus is not demanding or threatening. He's just a baby. And after all, he came to bring peace and happiness to the earth. There is nothing to fear from Jesus. But this is a dangerously incomplete picture of Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus who actually is deserves and, as we sung, demands your full obedience. Those who refuse to worship Jesus with all of their hearts will suffer dire consequences. Truly, if you misunderstand who Jesus is this Christmas, your soul is in great peril. To better fill out our understanding of Jesus then, Let's examine the prophetic word of the psalmist in Psalm 2. If you haven't turned there yet, please open your Bibles to Psalm 2. If you're using the Bible provided in the pew, it's on page 552. That's where we find Psalm 2. We're going to be looking at the whole psalm. Allow me to give you some brief background before we look at it. The psalms are a Holy Spirit-inspired set of worship songs, poems, and Prayers used during the days of the kingdom of Israel and afterwards. The author of Psalm 2, while some of the psalms give the author in, in the, the very first part, this author of Psalm 2 is not stated. But in the New Testament, book of Acts, chapter 4, verse 25, identifies the author of this psalm as David, the one-time sheep-tending youth whom God raised up and anointed to be the king of Israel. Psalm 2 is about one's attitude to God's king, the Messiah. Messiah, by the way, it means anointed one. And it refers to the anointing with holy oil that the kings of Israel received before they became king. So in that sense, there there was more than one Messiah. But while aspects of this psalm apply to David, an anointed king, and even to David's son Solomon, who was also an anointed king, this psalm is ultimately about the king to come, the Messiah, the final Messiah. Jesus is the only one who fully fulfills the words of Psalm 2. So this is a prophetic word given many hundreds of years before Jesus came to the earth, before God's true Messiah came. And the book of Acts, the book of Hebrews, and the book of Revelation, they all confirm this when they quote this psalm. But let's hear what David prophesied regarding the coming Messiah, regarding Jesus, Please follow along as I read. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son, that He not become angry and you perish in the way. For His wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. This psalm Is an exhortation to submit to, serve, and rejoice in God's Messiah King, who is Jesus. The psalmist says, Those who persist in rebellion against the Messiah will be utterly destroyed. While those who repent and submit to Messiah will be saved, will be happy, will be protected i summed up the message of the psalm in my sermon title, giving the more literal rendering of the beginning of verse 12. It's this, Kiss the Son, lest he be angry. In this psalm, David, led by the Holy Spirit, presents three reasons why any other action besides loving and making peace with God's Messiah is foolish and dangerous. I'll give you the three reasons, and then we'll explore each by looking at the text. Why should you this morning run to and kiss God's Son, the Messiah? Well, the first reason, the world is in rebellion against God's good Messiah. Second reason, the Father easily confounds man's rebellious plans. And the third reason, the Son testifies that he will surely rule all. After we look at these points, We'll explore the application given by the author to kiss or do homage to the son. Let's look at David's first point. I'll repeat it. The first point is, the world is in rebellion against God's good Messiah. The world is in rebellion against God, God's good Messiah. Let's reread verses 1 to 3. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. Notice the terms nations and peoples. The psalmist says whole nations, vast amounts of people are in uproar. They are in tumult. They are raging. They are frantically trying to find a solution to an extremely irritating problem. And what's the problem? the Lord's anointed. We must find a way to be rid of the rule of God's Messiah. This is what they say. They cannot rest or be at peace until they achieve their aim. They are in uproar. Notice, they are also devising. The idea of devising is thinking, meditating, plotting. They are scheming to find a way to successfully nullify or overthrow the rule of God's king. The psalmist, however, notes these actions in question form. Why are they doing these things? Do they not realize that their raging efforts are senseless and vain? But the rebel horde pays no heed. They believe that through their raging and scheming, they will find a way to overcome God's king. It's not just the common people, however. Verse 2 says that the kings and rulers are also standing against the Messiah, the anointed of God. Great men, those with power and influence, take counsel, plot, consult together, and determine to stand as one against Messiah. And verse 2 says they not only stand against God's Messiah, but against the Lord himself. And the word for Lord there is Yahweh. I am the eternally self-existent one. They will stand against Messiah and Yahweh. King and commoner then are united in purpose. Ruler and ruled, strong and weak, determined together to rebel. We hear their rallying cry in verse 3. Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords. We don't want the rule of God or his Messiah. Let us cast off their yoke. Let us gain independence. We will no longer subject ourselves to their rule. Or their direction. These are quite brazen acts and words to oppose not only the Messiah but also Yahweh himself. One has to ask why why do the nations want to do this? Why do they resent the rule of God and Messiah so much? Why does anyone ever desire rebellion against a ruler? Is it not because they hate the way the ruler rules? We hate this king, they say, for his burdensome laws and his harsh commands. He is an oppressor and a tyrant. He does not desire our good. He wants to take from us all that we love. We therefore want to throw off his shackles and be free to enjoy our lives without him. Yet, how can one say such things of God or his Messiah? The scripture demonstrates God's works and God's character. Did not God create the world and deserve the obedience of his creations to whom he gave the very breath of life? Did not God make the world very good when he created it? Does not God sustain all men and give them the things they need for life every day? God provides all the earth with food. He sends the rain. He causes the sun to continue to warm mankind. He gives companionship. He gives meaningful work. He gives marriage. He gives many other gifts to men. He even gives men the opportunity to have a relationship with him. More than this, God's heart is good. He loves justice and hates evil. He will not let evildoers go unpunished, but enacts vengeance for the righteous. He protects and saves the the oppressed. He is only ever truthful. He is eternal, glorious, faithful, compassionate, merciful, and wise. There is no fault in God, and every good thing has its source in him. And his son, the Messiah, shares his exact nature and essence. God's king is also perfect in glory, in righteousness, in kindness, in justice, in knowledge, and in truth. He is as the Father is. So why? Why do the peoples and the kings of the earth despise Yahweh and Messiah as they do? There can only be one answer. Because men, all men, are evil. They are sons of the devil and not sons of God. They love darkness and hate light, as John 3.19 says. They practice lawlessness and don't want their evil deeds reproved or exposed. It is actually the very goodness of God that man cannot stand. Therefore, they hate God and they hate his king. Mankind would rather continue in slavery to sin and continue to suffer sin's curse, then embrace God or his king as master. Some men rebels, angrily, frantically, openly, with constant scheming, constant taking of counsel, united in the goal to oppose and overthrow God and his Messiah. But you say, surely this is not the case. I know many kind and good people in the world. How can you say they are rebelling? Well, to this I answer, not every rebel is an open one. Many are secret rebels, putting up a front of loyalty and righteousness, when truly their deeds are corrupt. They are corrupted with pride, love of man's opinion, and love of self. Some hope to do enough good works to placate God, to get God off their backs, so that they can then live their own way. But this, too, is rebellion. Such persons still do not want to acknowledge God's Messiah as the rightful ruler of every aspect of their lives. They still love idols instead of God. So they are rebels. All men are rebels. Unless one still wished to protest... God categorically in his Bible declares all men to be evildoers. Listen to Psalm 14, verses 2 to 3. It's in in the same book. Yahweh has looked down from heaven upon the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Isaiah 56.3, the first part of it, also says, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. We don't want God's king. We want our own way. We may try to hide this, but all of us do this. Man has always rebelled against God and his king. The psalmist says they continue to do so, and they will do so, even in the last days of the earth. The book of Revelation tells us they will still rebel against God and his Messiah. Man's rebellion seems strong. They have made careful plans. They have banded together. They have enlisted the support of the great men as well as myriads of people. For a moment, their rebellion looks like it might succeed. This is the first truth that God would have us realize. The world is indeed in rebellion against God's Messiah, God's good Messiah. While the nations rage against God, they feel they have a good chance of success. But the psalmist has already hinted that such rebellion is doomed folly. Why is this? Well, the psalmist is going to show us in the next two points. Here's the second point. The father father easily confounds man's rebellious plans. The father easily confounds man's rebellious plans. Look at verses 4 to 6 again. He who sits in the heavens laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Notice the laughter and scoffing of God as he notices the raging, rebellious machinations of mankind. You may find this surprising, but the only thing that the Bible records as making God laugh is man's ridiculous pride and sinful plans. God laughs. God laughs at that. We see this in Psalm 37, Psalm 59, and also this psalm. Why does God laugh at these things? Why does he show contempt for man's rebellious plans? Well, we see a number of reasons right here. Notice the first part of verse 4. Location. God is in heaven. Man is on the earth. Man is a finite creature. God is transcendent and powerful. How can man, who cannot even enter heaven, hope to overcome the God of heaven? What a silly plan. Furthermore, man plots, thinking he can outwit God and that God will not see or know the rebellious scheme that he has concocted. But God is in heaven. He sees it all. He says, I know everything that you're doing. I know your rebellion. I know your pretense and hypocrisy. You think you could deceive me? I see it all plainly. Also notice, it says God sits in heaven. There's a contrast here. Man is raging and rushing and scheming and trying to find a way to defeat God's purpose. God just sits, enthroned, calm, confident, not worried at all about what man has planned. God doesn't even need to react right away. He sits, and man takes God's inaction as a sign of impending success. Aha, see, I told you we'd get away with it. God's not doing anything. No, this is totally wrong. It's just that God is completely confident in his own power and is waiting for the perfect time to act. Speaking of power, The difference in power between man and God is so vast that any kind of rebellion, even a rebellion led by kings or consisting of every nation on the earth, is yet laughable. Look at verse 5 again. God sins confidently in heaven because, notice, what is it that God has already purposed to do? God says in verse 5, He will speak to the rebels. He will simply speak to them in his anger. What will God declare? He tells us, I have installed my king on Mount Zion. Mount Zion, that is, Jerusalem, the prophesied place of Messiah's rule. That's where David set up his capital. The I, in verse 5, or verse 6, is emphatic. And that's why in the New American Standard you have the phrase, but as for me, God is saying, I, just me, myself, I have already firmly established that my son Jesus will be installed on Mount Zion. Notice the result of God's simple declaration to mankind. Abject terror. Verse 5 says, He will terrify them in his fury just by making this declaration. The word of Adonai, the Lord and Master, paralyzes mankind with fear. God's word is enough to make all their plans useless. God simply declares, I've set up my king, and that's it. Man has no recourse. Man is stupefied. The rebellious plans come to a screeching halt. This shouldn't surprise us. We already know from Genesis, God spoke the earth into creation. God can speak the earth out of creation. God can cause creation to do whatever he wants by a simple word or command. Isaiah says, God's word never goes out and comes back void. Indeed, God's word is terrifyingly powerful. It never fails to be obeyed. Whatever he commands happens. Be made, be unmade. Be prosperous, be ruined. Be alive, be destroyed. If just the mere announcement of Messiah's kingship in Zion is enough to send all rebels in panicked flight, how can one not laugh at the supposedly ingenious plans of mankind to oppose and depose God's Christ? or Christ just means Messiah. So this is the second truth for us to realize. God easily confounds, the Father easily confounds man's rebellious plans. But it's not simply that God will make an announcement. God has already made an announcement that further guarantees the total submission of the world to God's Christ. And we see this in the third point. Here's the third point. The Son testifies that he will surely rule all. The Son testifies that he will surely rule all. This comes from the next set of verses. Look at verses 7 and 9. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord, He said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Notice the shift in speaker here. Now it's the Messiah himself who speaks. He declares a decree, an unchangeable proclamation from Yahweh himself. What is the decree? It has three parts. Yahweh first declares the Messiah is his son. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Wait a second. Does this mean that the Messiah, God's son, had a beginning? Today he was begotten? Not at all. This decree is not given at Messiah's coronation. In fact, the timing of this decree is not stated here at all. It was just sometime in the past based on other scriptures, the best understanding of the timing of this decree from God is not a specific point in history, but eternally, from the past. Though the decree did become manifest to the world at a specific point or specific points in history. Just as Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world, so this decree of inheritance was given by the Father to the Son before the world began, in the unfathomable space of eternity past. The Son is eternally begotten. He did not suddenly become begotten. He is of the same essence of the Father. He is one with the Father, yet distinct. He is fully God and is eternal as God. What is significant then about this announcement of sonship and begottenness? Well, it affirms that Jesus is the same as the Father. It affirms that because God is the Messiah's Father, then the Messiah is also God. The Jews of Jesus' day understood this. This is why when Jesus declared himself to be the Son of God, they wanted to put him to death for blasphemy. John 10, and 36 show us this. After Jesus had spoken, the Jews answered him, for good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. But Jesus responded, a couple verses later, Do you save him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God? And John 19.7 similarly shows us this. When the Jews bring Jesus before Pilate and they want him to be crucified. The Jews answered Pilate, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die, because he made himself out to be the Son of God. They understood. To be the Son of God means to also be God. So this decree from the Father affirms the Messiah will be God. The decree from the Father also affirms the fitness of the Messiah to inherit total rule of the world, as he is the Son of God. Sons receive whatever belongs to their fathers, especially at that time. All the universe belongs to the Father. Therefore, total rule of the universe is the Son's right by inheritance. But how will this rule be bestowed on the Son? Well, not simply by right, but by request. This is the second part of the Father's decree. The Father tells the Son, ask me for the kingdom, and I will freely bestow it all on you. Notice the great boundaries of Messiah's rule. Messiah will have dominion of the nations, not just Israel, but all the Gentile nations, even to the ends of the earth. There will not be a part of earth that he doesn't have dominion over. Messiah's kingdom inheritance will be over the entire world, meaning all people and all nations will be subjected to him. But as we've seen, the nations have rejected Messiah's kingship over them, they rebel. What is to be done? God is not thwarted in the slightest, nor is the Messiah the least bit worried. In verses 4 to 6, the word of the Father terrified the rebels. But verse 9 says, Messiah himself will break his enemies with a rod of iron. This is the third part of the Father's decree. The Messiah's scepter of rule, when he comes to inherit his kingdom, will smash down upon his enemies like hard iron. The rebels will be broken to pieces, shattered just as iron pulverizes a clay pot. There will be no underground resistance to Messiah. There will be no guerrilla warfare. There will be no army to continually make battle against him. Christ will find out his enemies and destroy every one of them. But you say, but Jesus is the gentle lamb. Surely he will not act with such violence. It's true. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and he came meekly to suffer and to save sinners. But it's also true that Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah, and he will come one day not to suffer, but to rule. And when he comes that second time, there will be no mercy for his adversaries. When the kingdom of God's Messiah comes, there will be no more patience. There will be no more mercy. There will be no more the gentle leading or prodding staff of the shepherd. Instead, there will be the iron scepter of absolute sovereignty. All enemies of Messiah will be suddenly and totally crushed. But perhaps you still say, surely I will escape. Surely I will escape the wrath of Messiah. Surely my rebellion will go unnoticed and unpunished. I urge you, consider the examples given to us in Scripture. In the days of Noah, God brought a sudden catastrophic flood on the unsuspecting yet fully rebellious world. And only eight people were saved. In the days of Lot, God brought fire from heaven down upon a naive and licentious city. Actually, a set of cities, a whole valley, Sodom and other cities. Only three were spared from the judgment. In the days of Moses, Joshua, David, Hezekiah, and others, the Gentile nations fought against Israel with massive armies and withstood sieges in seemingly impregnable fortresses, refusing to submit to God or his king. Yet the heathen armies were annihilated and their strongholds overthrown. It was easy for God to do that. As Pastor read earlier, in the days of Jesus, when he was born, wily Herod thought he could discover Christ's birthplace and then murder the baby Messiah. Keep the rule for himself. And though Herod massacred many innocent boys, God protected his Messiah. Herod was thwarted and Herod perished in paranoia. At the end of Jesus' ministry, the Jews and Gentiles united together to put God's son to death. And it seems like they were successful. They did defeat God's king. No, it only momentarily seemed like a victory. Their triumph was turned into a humiliating defeat because Jesus rose from the grave. And he ascended to the right place of God. But the ultimate example for us to consider, to show us you will not escape, is provided by prophecy of the future. Not just from Psalms, but Revelation. Please, hold your place in Psalm 2 and turn to Revelation chapter 19. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find the page on 1,239. Revelation 19. In this passage, we see the most literal manifestation of man's rebellion against God's Messiah. In the plains of Armageddon, the rulers and armies of the earth gather to do a literal battle with God's Christ. How does it go? Look at verses 11 to 21. This is Revelation 19, verses 11 to 21. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And he cried out with a loud voice, saying to all the birds which fly in mid heaven, Come, assemble for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of commanders and the flesh of mighty men and the flesh of horses and of those who sit on them and the flesh of all men, both free men and slaves and small and great. And I saw the beast, that is the Antichrist, the future evil ruler of the world, I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And the beast was seized. And with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse. And all the birds were filled with their flesh." What is the result of this future outright war against Messiah? It's slaughter. It's slaughter for Messiah's enemies. The dead are not even buried. Their flesh is food for birds. This is sobering. If you remain a rebel against God and against his Messiah, either openly or secretly, such is your fate. You will be destroyed. You'll be destroyed by the command of Messiah. And then afterwards, you'll be judged at the great white throne for your sin. All of your sins will be recounted. You'll be condemned. And then you will be thrown into the lake of fire to be tormented forever. As the price of rebellion. God has irreversibly decreed that Messiah's rule will be established totally when he comes to the earth. God has declared it. Messiah testifies of it. Philippians 2.10 echoes it. is what Philippians 2.10 says. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So, we see a third critical truth from this psalm. The Son testifies that He will surely rule all. So, let's review the three truths the Holy Spirit has declared to us from this psalm. First, the world is in rebellion against God's good Messiah. Second, the Father easily confounds man's rebellious plans. And third, the Son testifies that he will surely rule all. What does this mean? Well, if you do not know Christ as your true Master and Savior today, then you have great reason to fear. You have joined with the rebels of the world against the great I Am and his good Messiah. You have sought to throw off God's yoke. You have insisted that you will rule yourself and that you will have your own way. You have blasphemed God in your heart by declaring to God that he is an evil tyrant and his rule is unjust and oppressive. Do you think God does not notice? Do you think God will not act against your wicked rebellion? And if you insist that you're not a rebel and that you're safe, look at your life. Do your actions show that you love Jesus more than anyone or anything? Do you actually do what Jesus commanded? God already declares to you that he laughs at all evil plans. In a moment, he could simply speak to you and undo you. Make no mistake. If you are indeed a rebel, you will not succeed against God or his Messiah. God has already irrevocably established his Messiah on Zion. Furthermore, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who is of the same essence of the Father and has full right of inheritance, he will rule the entire earth. Every nation and people will be subjected to him. Messiah will make request and the Father will gladly bestow upon the Son total rule. Jesus will come as the conquering king to obtain his kingdom, and if you have not bowed to him already, you will be shattered by his iron rod. But there is hope. There is hope because God's wrath has not yet been poured out on you. He has given you a chance to stop your rebellion and make peace. Therefore, make peace with God. Come under his yoke again. Embrace his Messiah as friend and king. And you will not be destroyed as an enemy. For this is exactly what the psalmist urges. Let's now look at the application section of Psalm 2, verses 10 to 12. So back in Psalm 2. Again, that's page 552 in the Pew Bible. Look at verses 10 to 12 of Psalm 2. Now, therefore, O kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth, Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son that He not become angry, and you perish in the way for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Notice these these words are addressed to the world's kings and judges. If the most powerful and influential people in the world are instructed to humble themselves to surrender to God while they can, then surely. The common people must as well. And notice the word discernment in verse 10. David urges the rulers of the world to act with discernment, show understanding, embrace wisdom, embrace reality, the fact that God's Messiah cannot be successfully opposed. Stop your rebellion. It's the only wise thing to do. What does it mean to stop rebellion? Verse 11 and 12 tell us more. It means to worship and rejoice in Yahweh. God is great, and God has done great things. Give him the praise and honor that he deserves. Let him be your treasure, not the things or the idols of the world. Love the Lord, for he is good. Seek out his commands and do them. Serve the Lord. Repent of every evil way. And commit yourself to following God's way in everything. And this is to be done with reverence and trembling. The word for reverence can actually simply be translated as fear. Worship and serve God with fear. Now this is not the fear that God might smite you at any time or that craven trembling that even after you've repented and followed God, you're still not safe. No, 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 no. That's not what we're talking about. This is the holy fear. That realizes this is the transcendent, eternal, and mighty God I'm dealing with. There is no one like him. He is a consuming fire. I must take his word seriously. Furthermore, ending rebellion means to do homage to the sun. The phrase in verse 12 is literally kiss the sun, though the New American Standard Translators, translators have sought to give you the sense do homage, show fealty, show respect, show loyalty, show honor. Kissing a sovereign can indeed be a sign of loyalty and allegiance, but a kiss can also be a sign of other things, making peace, worship, and showing affection. You must embrace each of these attitudes towards God's Messiah, God's Son. Give your full loyalty and devotion to Jesus. Make peace with him. Give him the praise and worship and adoration he deserves and love him for the holy and loving king that he is. For truly, there is no king like King Jesus, a king who temporarily laid aside the glory of God to become a man, even a baby, to save men from their sins. King Jesus grew up, lived a perfectly righteous life, and allowed himself to suffer rejection from his rebellious people. He died a humiliating death on the cross so that he might rescue rebels, those that believe in him, from the wrath of God. You see, for any men to be saved, their blasphemous, heinous rebellion must be paid for. It is a terrible crime. God's justice demands satisfaction. Jesus willingly offered this satisfaction. He gave the just payment by suffering God's full wrath against himself. Jesus suffered the penalty of those who believe in him so that they might have their sins paid for once and for all. They might be forever clothed in the righteousness of Jesus and they might inherit eternal life with Jesus. Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by the Father. And Jesus rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, where he now waits until God bestows upon him all the nations of the world as his inheritance. No king in history has been so good, so compassionate, so humble, so holy as King Jesus, God's Messiah, is. Today, Jesus invites you to be saved and to have peace with him and with the Father. You know the gentle invitation of Jesus from Matthew, Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, stop your rebellion. Stop your senseless raging and striving. Stop trying to earn peace with God or trying to secure salvation for yourself by your own good deeds. Come to the Son. Take him as your substitute. Give up your own way. Take upon yourself the gracious yoke of Jesus. 1 John 5.3 says, The commandments of Jesus are not burdensome. And it's true. Jesus' commandments are good and wise and life-giving. If you know who Jesus is, if you believe in him, you want to follow his commands. It's not that keeping Jesus' commands saves you. Rather, keeping Jesus' words is the proof of whether you've really come to know him as Lord and Savior. As the apostles begged, so I urge you today, on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Yahweh has given you the opportunity to kiss the sun. Take advantage before it's too late. Because there will come a time when God's patience runs out. Look at verse 12 again. If you do not kiss the sun, he will become angry. And his anger will eventually flash forth and you will perish. You do not know when this will be. It says, his wrath may soon be kindled. His patience may run out for you today. Christ may come back this very hour to begin his judgment on the world. Tonight you may die, God demanding your soul from you. It's happened to others. It could happen to you. Don't wait till it's too late to make peace. Don't delay any longer. Come and kiss the sun. Come and make peace. By doing so, you not only protect yourself from wrath, but you also secure for yourself the highest happiness. Look at verse 13. Or not verse 13, the end of verse 12. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Who's the him? Why, Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus is the only mediator between God and man. He's the only one who can rescue you from the wrath of God. Those who come to Jesus have Him as their refuge. And they become blessed. What does blessed mean? It means happy or fortunate. It is as the other scripture writers declare taste and see that the Lord is good. Rejoice in the Lord always. He is joy. When you stop being a rebel and make Jesus your king, Jesus is not only no longer your enemy, but he is your advocate, your savior, your provider, your protector, your help, your rest, your friend. He is so good. And when you make peace with him, he intimately discloses himself to you. Truly, there is no greater joy in life than to know Jesus. Behold, It is as Romans 11.22 says. There is a great difference between God's attitude toward the rebels and toward the reconciled. Those who stubbornly follow sin, who persist and insist on their own way, they experience God's severity. They will be destroyed utterly. But those who repent, those who are reconciled to God, they experience God's love. They get to experience God's astounding kindness. It's true that God came humbly and gently on the first Christmas night to bring peace on earth. But only in this sense. God was providing the world with a way to be reconciled to him. If that way is rejected, if you reject King Jesus, Christmas is not an announcement of your salvation and joy. It is instead an announcement of your destruction and damnation. So for the sake of wisdom, for the sake of happiness, for the sake of fellowship with Jesus, God, the Son of God, kiss the Son. Do not risk any more delay. If you do belong to Christ this morning, Notice the great comfort the teaching of the psalmist provides you. You have been made reconciled to God. You need not fear the iron scepter of the Messiah. It's your comfort. You have kissed the son and you've been made his beloved and protect citizen. Moreover, know that the world's rebellions against Messiah will not succeed. We see this all around us, do we not? We see the church persecuted all over the world. We see Jesus opposed and blasphemed. We see the world raging against the commands of God and repudiating all of his good ordinances one by one. It is disheartening to see this evil and injustice. But Take comfort, friends. This rebellion will not succeed. The Messiah will not be overcome. All evil will be recompensed and God's own will be vindicated. Christ will come to establish his kingdom and every knee will bow to him. The nations truly rage in vain. And also, remember this. When Christ reigns, when he receives his kingdom and reigns, so will you. This is what Jesus has declared. Revelation 20, verse 4, says that when Christ destroys his enemies at Armageddon, the dead in Christ will be raised up, and they will rule with Christ for a thousand years. Even in the eternal state, God's people will reign with Christ. Forever into the future, eternity, they will reign, they will be on the throne with him. For this is what Revelation 22, verses three to five declares, describing the new Jerusalem. There will no longer be any curse and the throne of God and of the lamb will be in it and his bondservants will serve him. And they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night and they will not have the need or they will not have need of the light of a lamp nor the light of the sun because the Lord God will illumine them and they will reign forever and ever. What incredible grace that we should not only be spared by the sun, but that we should be with him, that we should serve him, and we should rule with him forever. Praise God this Christmas sending such a great king into the world may he come back soon let's pray what an overwhelmingly beautiful word oh God you are great you deserve all honor you deserve all worship you deserve all service it is wicked for any to rebel against you yet God we know that this is what we have done We have rebelled against your goodness. We have hated you. We have hated your rule. We have wanted to live our own way, even though it was senseless and destructive. But You had mercy on us. You sent, oh, Father, you sent a way for us to be reconciled. Lord Jesus, you came and willingly suffered in our place so that we might be at peace with God and that we might be with you forever. What incredible kindness. Thank you for showing your kindness, God. I pray that no one listening today would fail to take advantage, would fail to come and kiss you, Jesus, to love you, to declare their rebellion over, to follow you. Lord, we also take comfort today that evil will not get away with, with itself, that you will rule and reign on the earth, that you will establish perfect justice, that you will repay each man according to his deeds. You are good. Thank you for coming into the world, Lord Jesus. Thank you, Father, for sending him. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for regenerating us so that we could know Jesus. In Jesus' name, amen.